0: Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest this week is Daniel Carter. As a longtime resident of Salt Lake City, Utah, Dan's music has been performed throughout the region, including performances by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. He has approximately 200 pieces published and available in sheet music. Dan is an advocate for mental health and education, particularly for the homeless. He is also a strong advocate of music education. Dan Carter, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you.
1: Very much. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: So I read that you were born in Caldwell, Idaho, or as you put it on your website, in the sagebrush of Idaho. That's right. So did you grow up your entire childhood in Caldwell?
1: No, not entirely.
0: Um, I was born there. And
1: uh, uh, as a young child, my my family, my, my parents and my grandparents went into business uh, in a butcher shop. And it was out in rural Idaho, about five miles outside Caldwell. And uh, the long story, and if I can post, we can post links about this, but I lost my, the most of my right index finger.
0: I read about that. Yeah.
1: I, now, uh, I now play with nine and a half fingers. So if things <laughs> go wrong, I always blame it on nine and a half fingers. It's easy. <laughs> so, but yes, Caldwell was a place that I, I grew up in and graduated from. We, we, we left Caldwell for four years to go to Lewiston, Idaho, up by Moscow. Okay, And then wound up coming back.
0: And so, okay. and so what sort of musical experiences do you remember having in the, in the Boise, greater Boise area, uh, or up by Moscow? What do you remember that sort of shaped your musical journey?
1: Well, as a kid, I loved music. I love music. I love the arts. Um, I was kind of an embarrassment to my dad. (laughs) He didn't know what to do with me. And so it was a total taboo for me to want to go into music. I mean, he said, no, you're not doing this. I mean, there were wars and quite uh, frankly, there was a lot of trauma over this. Um, In later life, before he passed, we were able to resolve all those issues. And I love my dad. And it was kind of miraculous that we were able to sort all that out. But the experiences that I had as a child is that uh, one of the first experiences was that I started playing on my grandmother's pedal organ. And she taught herself how to do organ. And she'd say, OK, we're going to learn how to read notes. So we're going to learn how to do this. And I would learn a few little pieces. And then I started inventing my own. And so anytime I got near a keyboard, I'd just start composing from the age of about uh, nine, uh-huh. eight or nine. And these are little ditties, like one of the earliest ones is a little jig. I don't know it anymore. <laughs> it's just a simple little jig. And so it's one of the surviving pieces. And when I was 16, I wrote a couple of little lullabies, you know, things like that. Um, the biggest influence for me growing up were two of my ward choir members. And one, one of them was Paulette Apo Stubblefield. She came from the Hawaiian Islands to the College of Idaho and Caldwell of all places and studied voice and viola. And then another person, Randy Towery and uh, Printcraft in Caldwell, Idaho is still running and Randy and his brother Steve run that. Randy was a genius, uh, still is, uh, trumpet player, musician, arranger, composer, all of that. Despite anything that my dad said or you don't have any ability. Or um, there's no money for piano lessons. These two people were my champions. And I started composing little bits for the choir to sing once in a great while, the war choir. And, uh, you know, they just said, we know what your dad is saying, but this is your life. And you have the capability. And you are going to be successful if you follow the path of success. I had no idea how to do that. So those were my early formative years. And and as a matter of fact, as a tribute to my dearest friend, Paulette. She just passed away about a week ago. And uh, it's a sad and beautiful time to remember her for all that she did for me and also for Randy. Yeah. My mentor, we're still in touch.
0: So what sort of things did they say would be on the path of success?
1: Well, first of all, I needed to get a good music education. And so my grades, I, I am OCD. Um, I have severe anxiety. I have a lot of complex trauma from my past and it's taken me a long time to resolve that. And at times I've even wondered if perhaps I might even be slightly, slightly on the spectrum. That's unknown. I just don't know, but I have two grandsons that are and they're savants, they're geniuses. So the pathway of success for first of all, getting a degree and then from there, most likely teaching. Well, the more I got into education, the more teaching just, uh. I finally certified for secondary, secondary education. And I taught for seven months in junior high school, and it nearly killed me. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time I left, they said, you know, you're only giving us two weeks, we need a month. <laughs> so they said, "We're you'll, you'll never teach here again because you're not. You're just not." And I said, "Please do me that favor."
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> However, I got a job at the church office building and became the church's music publisher, and subsequently spent 30 years doing that. And so the pathway to success for me was understanding that I really was a composer, and that despite some of the the, the pushback and everything I got. Less from other composers and teachers who, who taught composition, more from pianists. Uh, because I only had two years of piano by the time I got to college. I said, There's no, uh-huh. there is no way you're going to do this. So I was not treated very well by the piano faculty. Eventually, a man named Jerry Harris got a hold of me and he said, look, he was, he's a jazz piano. So he was faculty on jazz piano. He said, he said, come with me. I'll teach you jazz piano. I went, uh, yeah. Okay, and I could not improvise. I, to this day, I don't improvise well because I'm so caught up in it. You know,
0: uh-huh.
1: I can relax and do it. But um, but he said, you're going to take somewhere over the rainbow. You know the melody. You're not allowed to do any of the traditional chords. You're going to use jazz t- chords, the tall tertians, the added notes, all of that, the poly chords, everything else. And so I did. I was so mortified at uh, at piano juries that i slaughtered it like i normally did at juries <laughs> and they said "Ah, uh, we don't know what to do with you uh this is pretty good arrangement but we don't know what to do with you so they conferred for a few minutes they called called me back and I says more than anything you're you're stressed out and you're afraid to play i said just because i've been so humiliated for so long about this and they said we're going to give you a chance but you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to really really knuckle down and really show us that you're a good composer and a jazz pianist so that's how I kind of got through BYU and yeah, I'm not a jazz pianist I'm really <laughs> but I can do jazz things if I work on it
0: yeah so as you said you got your degree from BYU my alma mater as well um, so was it before you got to BYU or was it during one of those pivotal moments that you decided that Composition was what you wanted to do with your life.
1: Composition was what I wanted to do with my life from the time I was about 10 years old. Wow. I didn't have a plan B. In fact, uh, some of the piano faculty would say to me, so what else do you do? Do you sing? Do you play an <laughs> instrument? Uh, not really. Well, what makes you think you're a composer? I mean, I was, I was what? I'd just gotten off my mission. I was about 22 years old. And, and I said, what? Well, I don't have anything that i can prove to you that makes me a composer except for the stuff that i'm working on and so about a year later after the piano faculty dumped me and and almost forbade me to be in music and i found a way in around then i started being published by jackman music and the church and the church published my first publication was a hymn in the new era and this is 1977 or 78 and then I started winning the church music contests annually for ad nauseum years. And so Michael Moody got a hold of me, the chairman of music over the church at the time and said, "Uh, you want to come and be a judge? And I said, do you not want, not want me to enter? And he says, no, we want your insight and uh, we'll see how it goes from there. So I started doing that and they put me on the church music committee. So I was a member of the church music committee for almost 20 years.
0: That is awesome. That's awesome. So you did, you know, you, you've mentioned several times uh, that you've written a lot of music for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Uh, you know, mo- much of your career, many of your works have focused on your faith. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of your faith in your compositions uh, and in the path of your career.
1: So I absolutely loved what I did as a music publisher for the church. My ambition daily was to fill the world with good music. I didn't have the chance to compose my own music and put it out there as a music publisher I published All the standard things the standard hymns of the church the children's songs anything that was printed music in 145 languages. I published along with a couple of other people we helped pioneer the publishing the international publishing system for the church and in my career I published probably between 100 and 150,000 pages of music in one hundred forty-five plus languages. We pioneered how to do it in Arabic, Cambodian, I mean, a lot of non-Rom languages. So that was the premise and the basis. And my OCD proved to be a very valuable thing,
2: Hmm.
1: being of the proof and to zero in and when I would get stuck because of my OCD, I had these other geniuses beside me who would say, yeah, but we can do it this way or we can do it that way. So the guy that I hired when I retired, took my place. I had an interview with him and I felt so strongly that he, he was the one that was gonna take my place. And so I love this guy. And every now and again, he'll call and say, so uh, we've got all these questions and blah <laughs> So Okay, let's go to lunch. You can buy me lunch. And so I went up buying him lunch. Gold <laughs> 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 beans on what we need. And we go from there. But my faith is based out of my Mormon upbringing. But I did leave the church when I retired. And the reason I left is because I had this struggle for decades about whether or not I was gay. I was married for 23 years. I have two children and uh, five grandchildren with those two children. And then I was married very briefly a second time for a year, which put me in a tailspin and I made a suicide attempt. And uh, during that attempt, I held a full-time job and two other part-time jobs. I painted houses for 40 years on the side to make up for being a composer and a publisher. So uh, my faith really waned. I was done with the LDS church by the time I was 50 years old. Mm but I stayed on as a music publisher for 11 more years until I retired because I knew I could still fill the world with good music. So my spiritual, my faith crisis, everything, it took a huge toll on who I was, but I knew that I needed to come out of this darkness, this anger, this angst against the church and and what I perceived their policies were against gay people or anything else. It doesn't matter what it it is. Everyone's got a laundry list if they they have the extra grind. So out of that, I had to find what my spirituality was. And today, uh, almost six years later, I married a man, his name is Gail Franson. And uh, together we have six married children, 16 grandkids, and a whole bunch of fur grandbabies that we love. And my life has been a big adventure. And I just hold on tight and we run. And uh, I feel very, very much more spiritually grounded than I ever have in my life. One of the reasons is because I've connected with a few people who have similar philosophical and and, uh, spiritual ideas as myself. And uh, I've come, come to a place of peace with religion and Mormonism. Um, Mormonism gave me a basis it's, it helped me survive and uh, so although I'm not affiliated with the church in any way I still love the people that I work with and in fact I tell Ed I said I know this is mushy, I know this is weird but remember I'm gay and married to a man but tell everybody there that I love them <laughs> <laughs> so my my mantra is to heal To help others heal and to return to love that's the sum total of all of it and so i read scripture every day uh but now instead of reading uh the bible and other scriptures every day i read a course in miracles Mm -hmm. and it's shaking me up it's really transformed my view and i'm grateful that it is sometimes it's even frightening But when I let go and fall into it, it becomes beautiful beyond comprehension, so.
0: Well, thank you. So I wanna go back to your work with publishing music, although more focused on your own music. So in, in the bio at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that you have around 200 pieces published and available. Uh, I saw another site that said you had 350 and another site that said you have 500. So the question is, do you know how many pieces you have out there? Uh, And the second one, second question, uh, which piece of yours would you say is performed the most?
1: So the first answer to the first part is that at one time there were about 500 pieces. I self-published 13 books of music
0: on
1: the LDS market and uh, those tanked. And in fact, uh, because of policies on the LDS market and so on, it was much easier for people to buy the book, photocopy them and share it with friends. Uh uh-huh. So, um, and I think that that has improved much to the credit of the LDS audience. And I think they're becoming more aware that they're, I'm trying to make <laughs> this somehow. Right. I don't have to paint houses until I die. So eventually what happened was I shredded 3,600 books, 13 of those titles, 3,600 copies, I shredded. Those pieces, there are about 450, no, no, not quite that many, 300 pieces or so that were self-published. And what I'm, now that I'm 65, I think it's important that I find good homes, good publishers for any of the decent pieces there are that that were in that collection. So that's where I'm approaching it. Okay. In fact, I think that now it's somewhere around 350 pieces, maybe. Okay. I'm terrible at keeping track. It's just like, oh, yeah, I need to find a home for this. Let's send it out. (laughs) And people say, well, how many pieces have you composed? I have no idea. But thankfully, BYU library is interested in keeping all the little scraps of paper that I scribbled music on and, and uh, you know, and I'm going, yeah, you count them.
0: Well, we'll look forward to their, their complete collection. Once it's done.
1: Yes. And they, I have to say, knowing the full story about what I've done in my life and where I'm at now, it's like, are you serious? You really want to do this still? <laughs> and, going, and they're just, yeah, we love you. And this is a thing that comes back. I'm still loved. Mm-hmm. I left for because I had to leave to heal, but they love me, I love them all as well.
0: Absolutely. So the second question, do you know which piece of yours is performed the most?
1: Um I would juggle the two between Shine for Me against Our Bethlehem and Come unto Him, the one the piece uh-huh. that you and your group are performing. Right. I wrote uh, Come unto Him when I was 22, right after my mission. And uh, it was eventually published. It was 1978. And uh, it was published around 1982. And it sat around for a while until Ron Staley, BYU Singers, picked it up and they used it as an encore piece and it went around the world that way, which shocked me. And then um, Sherry, Audison Bird, and I. I handed her some music and it had some words and I said, this is not working. For some reason, I think it should be a Christmas song. Are you interested? She goes, well, yeah, but it really needs to have a different story. I mean, than a typical Christmas song. So she came up with this storyline about this little shepherd boy on Christmas night, saw the star and then later in life, what happened? It all disappeared. Why is my life in trouble? And then the words come in. Do not despair. Your star is still there. And I'll tell you what, that phrase has been picked up around the world. And I get emails every year from people who, through their tears, write me their messages of why that phrase means so much. And it was a phrase that I repeated to myself over and over and over again after the suicide attempt.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: Sherry's words would also help
0: me heal. Yeah, do not despair. Your star is still there. I love that. It's really nice. So if you could travel back in time with all the knowledge that you have now and Mm -hmm. talk to your younger self at the beginning of your career or beginning of your education, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Well, that's, I've thought about this a little bit. My parents really did the best that they could. We came, we are a blue collar family. We came from the dust of Idaho. We worked really, really hard. It was absolutely nonsensical for me to suddenly say, I want to be a musician. It was like, who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? We're blue collar. That's that's not what we do. And so they did the best with what they could with this kid who was just like, I don't know what to do with that. And so what I needed to do was rather than to buy in to all of the uh we don't do that, we don't act this way, we don't, whatever it is, I need to be sure in myself. And I would put my arms around that little boy and hug him and say, it's okay. You don't know this yet, but you are fine. And uh, you need to pursue this with the passion. You know is absolutely what you should do in your heart. And uh, the suicide attempt in 2005 reaffirmed to me that I really did need to be a composer. I did not have a plan B. And the reason I didn't is because I was too dumb to give up. (laughs) Too stupid to try to do anything else. My father handed me a paper. and said, you're gonna paint houses. And I went, oh no. And I said, for 40 years. (laughs) So, and I have to thank my dad. He was so practical he meant well. And uh, before he passed, we did have a miraculous healing. And uh, I can unequivocally say that I love him.
0: That's fabulous. So Dan, I know you've been busy in the last little while here affecting a move to St. George, Utah. Uh, But when you do have downtime, what is it that you like to do to relax? Do you have hobbies or just hang out with grandkids? (laughs) What?
1: We have a dear neighbor friend, and she roped Gail and I into taking an art class in Helper, Utah. And anybody who knows anything about Helper knows that this fantastic artist colony has arisen there. And for some reason, we drove into there, and we drove along the Main Street, and my, my husband Gail grew up in Price, which is only six miles away, and he says, wow, this place is really transforming. We saw gallery after gallery after gallery. So we strolled in one. And all of a sudden we became best friends with Steve Adams. And Steve is a fantastic artist. And Steve introduced us to other artists and other people in the community. And so from this art class, my my husband says, you know, it stressed me out. I thought, oh, this is easy. I can do this. I used to, I got a scholarship, tiny little scholarship in art in college. But so art may be one of them, but he's being very skeptical. Netflix is a great downtime. <laughs> um, as, long as, as long as I have this piano, because I didn't have a piano for over 10 years. This came about after we got, uh, just before we got married uh-huh. and I wept when he bought it. But so the downtime is in the evenings when Gail comes home, he's a real estate agent, um, I play concerts. Nice. Sometimes I open the patio doors and the neighbors shout, open them more. I'm saying no because I'm practicing and I'm composing and you really don't want to hear this so uh, we do things like that we love to host evenings with with dinner and music the pandemic killed that Mm -hmm. but we're getting back into that and it's the most glorious evenings we have listeners we have performers doesn't matter what you do we do bluegrass we do comedy we do everything And uh, they suffer through whatever my newest invention is, which which I can't play. (laughs) Not a practice time.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will listen to some of Dan's
2: compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Dan
0: Carter. So we'll start today with your Little Sonata in C, a three-movement work for piano. So this is an older work written back in 1989. Uh, you mentioned to me that it was written about your son who was about two years old at the time. So can you tell us more about what this piece is actually about?
1: Yeah, 1989 was an incredible year. We bought our first little house. It was 900 square feet just uh, south of BYU campus. And just right down in front of where uh, the big water park used to be. In fact, the water park wasn't there for the first couple of years that we were there. After year three, we sold it and then we moved to Bountiful. But during that time in that tiny little house, Michael was a force of nature. He's happy, go lucky. He he was very much like his mother in that way in her younger years. And uh, we had this big upright grand, five foot upright grand And he, in the mornings, he was full of energy and he was going to get outside. Well, I'd go to work and my ex-wife, my wife at the time, would be in the shower and she would shove the piano up against the front door because he would try to run out the door. Well, he got behind, because it was on a hardwood floor, he got behind the piano and pushed it far enough that he could run outside. So he was all over the map. And so, and then he would play really hard until nap time. And then in the afternoons, he would just kind of, Lil to So the first movement is called Happy Imp. And uh, it's this, he's, it's fast and dizzy. It's just crazy. And so I picked up this little, this little, uh, uh motive here.
2: And I'm not playing it very well,
1: but it's this crazy little chromatic thing. And, uh, and it goes back and forth and so that was the first movement and then the second movement was fun uh it's called the nap and it's based on this just a little pentatonic scale and then there are all these parallel chord constructions and uh all the rules of music theories i loved to just experiment and kind of blow the things up so there's all these kinds of things of like Uh, and it goes on from there and so uh, but the, the right hand is in three four time and the left hand pretends to be in four four time so it was easier just to do the ties in the left hand and it was fun it was just a fun experiment and there's also whole, to- whole tone scales and things like that and then the last movement at play it's this trippy little 10-8 thing One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine ten. So it's a six plus four. Mm -hmm. And it's based on this uh, what is it? You know, this 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 parallel third constructions and there's all kinds of soft dissonance. And there's these little it's it's like the kid is just lilting through the afternoon, you know. So it was, it was super, super fun to compose. And that time, 1989, was a time where I was kind of busting out of a lot of things that I had done previously, and I was really wanting to experiment. Uh-huh. So the Sonata is one of the things that I've really enjoyed from that era. And I also did this mammoth setting of the Articles of Faith, which are the 13 Articles of Faith that the LDS Church uh, now uses basically a scripture and uh it's never been performed it's also along the same lines the the instead of tonal it's more modal Mm -hmm. instead of uh, uh you've got cross rhythms some uh complex time signatures things like that and i could never find anybody that really wanted to perform it i don't think it was that terribly difficult but it just didn't seem I think part of the hesitation was that this was a little too progressive for something uh, of this type of a, uh, a text.
0: Right. Okay, well, we are going to take a moment here and we're going to listen to a little sonata in C. Let's turn next to Dance of Our Living for SATB Chorus and Piano. So this is a new work uh, yet to be premiered, correct?
1: That's correct.
0: So you wrote this in collaboration with British lyricist and librettist uh, Ewan Tate. So how did you connect with him for this project?
1: I cannot remember exactly if Ewan sent me the friend request on Facebook or whether I sent him. But uh, I think it was he sent a friend request to me and I vetted it out a little bit. I, uh, I like to accept most people's friend requests. Um, there are a few minor stipulations and I, I started vetting him out and I went, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was really intimidated. And, uh, but I was so intrigued because everything I knew about him that I could see from his website and so on. Um, sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> Let me just make sure that doesn't happen again. So uh, uh, he, he is uh, a philosopher, a writer, a librettist, a lyricist. Um, he plays double bass. He teaches retreats. Uh, he helps all kinds of people integrate into society. He's deeply, deeply spiritual, deeply spiritual. And so we started having... After we connected, we started having a conversation about uh, suffering, loss, grief, etc. And it was, I can't describe it any other way, except for when Ewan would write these things to me and I would respond, it was, it was as if we were singing to each other. Mm. And I think either he I, or I may have said those very words. It's as if we we're singing to each other. And so, in December of 2019, he asked if he could send me a text. I went, like, "Wait, me? Are you?" I mean, seriously, you're working with all the best composers on the planet here. He goes, "Yeah, yeah. You sent me links. I like your music. Let's do this." So I did, and it was as if, with that text, he prophesied the coming pandemic. But I couldn't set that one to music. So I went shopping through his Facebook profile, and I found "Dance of Our Living." And I said, um, I know that you usually gift your texts to composers, but can I, can I set this one? He was very, very gracious about it. I said, sure. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I did. And I played with it and played with it and played with it. And so finally, what happened was there was a, a, a theme that I created in about 1977, as soon as I got back from my mission and started at BYU. And it was a It was playing with extended harmonies and things like this. And it came out like this.
2: And I added a melody. Well,
1: anyway, you can tell I haven't practiced. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, what I did was I kept, how can I extend this further? Because I never know, I never knew how to extend it or keep it going, but Ewan's text really delivered. It delivers a new dimension and, uh, there's a section in there.
0: Um, yeah, I actually have the text in front of me. And since we do only have a, a MIDI recording, do you mind if I just read the text real quick?
2: Sure, yeah.
1: It's this idea that uh, the storms, uh, and I'm just getting to it, and it says, um, oh, dance of the storms of the world to you. Dance, dance of our living. But it's the first time that anybody has put storms in an aspect of a part of the beauty of our living. We always think of storms as negative, and you and transforms these things into something
0: far more beautiful and complex. Okay. So I'm going to read the the full poem here. Uh, Peace of the breath of the world to you. Peace, peace of its breathing. Dance of the storms of the world to you. Dance, dance of our living. May light play around you like laughter, like a little child. And may you receive and nurture the quiet gift of all that is human. Love return again. So be it. Amen. So in addition to this wonderful text that acts as a blessing upon the listener, I love that piano work with that undulating uh, movement uh, in the piano. So sort of what mood or energy were you hoping to create with the piece as you were writing?
1: Um, it, It is a blessing, but to me, I don't know why I feel this, but it almost feels like a lullaby that we're being held in the arms of the of our higher power of of god of uh-huh. of uh, the atoning one whoever it is and they're saying the storms are beautiful too this is the dance of our living this is you know the breath the breathing it's all of it it's just it's and so i wanted this feel of this this gentle swaying yeah going- And then uh, this traveling adventure on harmonics and things like that, it it turned out to be, I like the piece a lot. I'm not sure that other people will. Um, I just don't know yet.
0: All right. Well, let's take a moment and we'll listen to Dance of Our Living. And let's end today with By the River I Lay Down, which you lovingly refer to as the pandemic piece. Uh, So like Dance of Our Living, this one is also based on poetry from Ewan Tate. Uh, The piece has three sections, which are driven by personal and societal pain, suffering, and later healing. So I know this is something you've been working on for the past 17 months or so. So can you tell us about the journey you've been on while working on this?
1: Yes, Uh, Ewan sent me the text through messenger on facebook in december of 2019 and uh, we knew what was coming out of china we kept hearing rumblings but we did not know how it would affect us Mm -hmm. and uh, his text was based on this previous conversation of our suffering and so on and so when i received the words i my eyes got biggest plates i said oh my gosh what do i do with this because this is this isn't anything, anything that I have ever encountered or or thought that I would ever do in the future, you know, mm. and uh, and then I was really struggling. There was when stress gets high for me, my hearing gets worse, and I had this really high high tinnitus that that rings all the time, twenty four seven. So therefore, you know, when you compose the sympathetic vibrations kind of cancel out some of the mid pitches somewhere. And I don't always get to hear everything outside my head as well as I want to, and it creates a little frustration. Well, along with this pandemic thing, and we call it pandemic, but this is is a true state of our world now. And so the words, by the river I lay down, face in the wet mud and wept. For what I did not know, but weeping overwhelmed me. Weeks and weeks of exhaustion and grief I could not name. The river flowed by, rumbling like a gathering roar deep in its throat. I just saw tears of grief falling like the floods of Noah, and the river rising, and we're drowning in it. We're literally drowning in it. That's this personal, personal crisis that we're going through. And then in the second part, a city is not a city. See, on a day of terrible rains, it dissolved. It became rivers and lakes and evaporated. On the clouds, the footfalls of wanderers. The winds are are here are the cries of families seeking home. But see, listen, the city has gone by. Homelessness, the wanderers, the footfalls of wanderers in the clouds. Oh my gosh, you know, and you start getting these images, and then in part three, child, broken boy, this music is the sound you cannot utter, (laughs) I'm just going, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I can wrap my head around this yet. Courageous girl, I have found the sound of great wings, and it is you overhead. So. After I read this text over and over again, I started talking with Gail about it. I read it to him one night, just as we were getting ready for bed. And he dreams, he drifted off to dreamland immediately. And I couldn't fall asleep for a couple of hours because I couldn't get these images out of my head. About three in the morning, I could feel the music rumbling. Feel it, feel it, feeling. And I couldn't hear the music, I could feel it. And all of a sudden the courageous girl, the sound, the, the courageous girl, I have found the sound of great wings, and it is you overhead. All of a sudden, that was Mother Eve to me. I don't know if that's what Ewan had in mind. It's Mother Eve to me. And so all of these angels she's calling to descend and surround us, whether we're conscious of it or not, so that we don't die in our despair so the main theme that came was the idea of the tears of our grief and loss falling and the river rising and it sounds like this <laughs> comes in during the the first section a few times and then it comes in one final time at the end after the presentation of the courageous girl and it becomes it becomes hope. And so it sounds like this Those final chords are kind of the grand amen. It also starts with those chords. It's an amen. It's so many things. And so the depth of this piece can be uh, felt on a secular basis as well as a
2: deeply, deeply
1: spiritual basis. And I had to, in order to comprehend it, I had to let go of my fear of my own past complex trauma and simply fall into it fall into it and trust that what would come out would be something that I could both comprehend and that it would be positive. And I learned that healing complex trauma allows you to go back into it and see that there's there beauty in the darkness, that, it's mm. that there's something beautiful there. There's a lesson, there is power, there is learning. There are all these beautiful blessings from it but we can't see that when we're in the
0: fog. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. We are going to take a moment here. We're going to listen to excerpts from By the River I Lay Down. Hey, I just want to make a brief interjection here. Uh, So, I recorded this interview with Dan back in June of 2021. And about a week after we recorded this, I was able to perform his piece, Come Unto Him, uh, with a new orchestration that he allowed me to do. Uh, And so, at this time, we're going to listen to one of his most performed pieces, Come Unto Him, performed by the Ensign Symphony and Chorus. Mm All right, so Dan, what are you working on now? Uh, Do you have any upcoming projects after your pandemic piece is completely finished?
1: Um, You know, I threatened to write a mass (laughs) and I kind of gave up on it because uh, the pandemic was incredibly difficult for me with my OCD and everything, but I learned a lot. Um, I learned by around uh, May of last year that I could negotiate this. I would go to the store and OCD, masked, gloved, everything, come in with groceries. I would sterilize everything, get rid of the grocery bags. And then I would drop all my clothes and go up to the shower and and I would cry for no reason because it was just so stressful for me. And crying was just a relief. Mm -hmm. I got used to the rhythm of it and so I thought, I need to write a mass. And the reason I, I wanted to do that is because uh, Gail and I have aligned ourselves more commonly with, more often with the Episcopal faith. And we've raised money for Hildegard's pantry here in Salt Lake City, which is a homeless uh, food pantry with the, the Episcopal people. And, um, and, and so i thought about writing a mass. I shelved it. I'm starting to have this little bit. The reason the the mass is important is because of the structure of it, the the ritual behind it, uh, the the basis for which it allows us to uh, 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 come to a place of stillness and commune with God. Mm -hmm. And so my approach was going to be from the outside in. Usually the mass is from the church to the audience. This is from the audience those who are coming to mass into the church, they're stressed out. We're in a pandemic. I lost my job. I'm homeless. And so how do you say, I believe in God? Well, I think I believe in God. Today, I'm not so sure. So the basic tenets of religion. And so as you go through the mass with these doubts, how do you instill peace again? And that's kind of, what I would like to do, and uh, I've debated about writing the text myself. Um, relying, I'm, I'm in touch with a, uh, a Jesuit priest uh, who's written some sonnets about it that I'm considering. Mm-hmm. Um, he's fantastic. So I don't know what'll happen.
0: Well, we look forward to finding out. So, if my listeners want to learn more about you, where can they where can they look you up online? Uh, you know, my bio is a little
1: out of date. I need to get that updated. But danielcartermusic.com and the Wikipedia page is way off. It's <laughs> real. Old. I probably need to update all of the things that I should be updating, but I haven't done yet. But um, I am on Instagram for sure. I'm on Facebook at times. I actually, when I need a break, I just shut down and deactivate and I get back on. hmm but it doesn't mean that I'm mad at anybody or anything else. It just means that I had to have a sanity break.
0: All right. Well, speaking of which, hey, listeners out there, if you want to get all the latest news about Movable Dough, including updates about our previous guests, come join our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. You'll get all the top content about your favorite composers. Uh, and Facebook isn't your thing. We are also on Instagram at Dough Podcast. Well, Dan Carter, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. This has been a real pleasure for me,
2: too.
0: My guest today was composer Daniel Carter. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough@gmail.com. at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.